And we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we're able to come here and worship you in spirit and truth. That's the only way to worship you. You're looking for people to worship you in spirit and truth. Can't have, can't miss either of those. And so we've got your truth right in front of us. We pray that it's by your spirit that we're worshiping you, that we're born again, and that uh, we give you our full attention this morning. Help us to keep our minds from wandering or, or whatever else that can distract us, Lord. And that our uh, hearts and our minds will be completely yours as you instruct. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A couple things coming up here at Calvary. Uh, the Wednesday before the Christmas Eve service and the Wednesday after, we won't be having services those two nights. Uh, because Thursday is going to be the Christmas Eve service, our candlelight service at 7.30. Join us for that if you want to. But um, to a lot of people come from out of town and we... Um, we th- you know twice twice in the midweek is a lot for them, and so we want to make sure that um, we're being sensitive to their needs and and, and all in their travel time. So um, we're going to just do the Thursday night, and uh, we'll we'll do that at seven thirty. It's a great time. I encourage you to come out for that. It's really special, good tradition. Um, and then uh, there's a New Year's Eve party. Uh, we always have New Year's Eve get together for uh, f- food and stuff like that, and then also games and stuff until midnight. And, usually a movie or something for the kids. And so you're welcome to join us for that. And that starts at 6.30, I believe. I'm looking up. Yeah, 6.30. Um, and that's it. That's what's coming up. Second Chronicles chapter 10. It's been an interesting week, I think, for a lot of us. Um, um, with, you know, pandemics or, or masks or shutdown or whether that's uh, political, um, <laughs> you know, uh, quite a roller coaster. And uh, it's just interesting. Um, what's happening. And so with all that being said, I, I listened to a certain uh, radio show that probably some of you listen to too. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, he actually mentioned on there, he goes, I don't know what the answer is except for secession. And I'm like, come on. I mean, are we going to go down that road again? Are we really going to, I mean, what do we do with Colorado? I don't want to lose the mountains just because they want to pot, you know, smoke pot and be liberal. I mean, can we kick them out or put them someplace or something so I can have Colorado? And I don't want to lose the Pacific Ocean, you know? I don't want to lose all of California, uh, Northern California excluded and all. And um, then there's the East Coast, which is always cold and kind of windy and not that great anyway. But I want to see it sometimes. I mean, I don't have to have papers to go. So I'm going through that. That's not going to happen. Chapter 10 of Second Chronicles is about or ten of the tribes of Israel seceding from Israel, and I'm not saying so. You know, pack. No, it's not, I'm pretty sure we're okay here. But <laughs> it is interesting that that is exactly what chapter ten is about. They secede. They do it. You know, I don't want that. I just want my way. It'd be, it'd be a lot easier if everybody just agree with me. <laughs> so I'm going to propose that and see what they do with it. I'm, Nancy's going to be on board, I'm sure. And she's easy to get along with. <laughs> First one. And, and Rehoboam, I remember Rehoboam is Solomon's son. And he's been handed the keys to the kingdom, basically. It's his turn to rule. It's his, um, it's his to rule. And so this is the one we're talking about. His son Solomon is gone. Um, The sister chapter to this 
is 1 Kings chapter 12. If you want to read that on your own sometime, that's the sister chapter. It explains a whole lot more about what's going on here. But Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, heard it. He was in Egypt, where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon. We'll hear more about that a little bit later. He came back. He returned from Egypt. Then they, that's the people of Israel, sent for him, that's Jeroboam, and called him. And Jeroboam and all Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, he's the new king, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. So he said to them, Come back to me after three days. And the people departed. Already he's got problems. Leadership takes no rest from problems. It just comes with the territory. And so no sooner has Rehoboam got the crown on his head that he's got a group of people saying, we're not happy with the way the nation's going. We want less taxes. And at first glance, man, I'm all on board with that. I don't think any of us enjoy taxes. I know we know some of them are necessary, but we're pretty sure we could, we could help them out with some budget cuts and make it a whole lot easier on us. With that being said, I have to put myself in their shoes, whether that's a, well, Congress holds the the purse, but what it's like to be on the receiving end of those taxes and then having the responsibility to make sure everything's paid for and running right, the way most of the people expect it to, you know. And it might be a little hard to be in the position of Rehoboam to say, yeah, I don't know about cutting taxes right now. We were just starting to build a better pipeline to Egypt to get our trade going a little more smoothly. We need a little more defenses in our northern territory because some of those guys are flexing their muscle up there. And we don't, you know, there's things going on. And so I want to give him, well, some grace because I don't, I'm not in Rehoboam's shoes. Jeroboam, you kind of wonder about his motives. Is he just looking for an opportunity to get in there? You know, he's got a group of people. They called him. He didn't call them. I guess I've got to give him credit for that. The people said, Jeroboam, glad you're back. Hey, we've got a problem with Rehoboam. You want to help? Okay. And he was eager. I think he was eager. So here they are in the middle of a situation where we want less taxes. We want an easier burden for us. Would you do that? And if you do, we're going to serve you forever. Now, they may be genuine. They may actually believe what they're saying, but we know the nation of Israel. We know people in general. Once they get something, they want a little bit more. They want a little bit more. It's it's hard to stop that train. So I don't know if they would have actually served him. They might have said, well, yeah, but now we want this, and then we want that, because that's kind of how negotiations can go sometimes. So I don't know. But here's what I do know. Rehoboam is about to go get counsel. He's going to get counsel from some old guys. He's going to get some counsel from some young guys. He's going to get two different answers, but he does not seek the Lord. He doesn't seek the Lord. And that's a lesson for me, and I think it's a lesson for all of us as believers. It's not as simple as lower taxes or higher taxes. Something else is going on here, and I don't know the right answer, and I need to seek the Lord. We're going to discover here later on in this same chapter that God says, this is all of me. This is all my doing, and here's why it's being divided the way it's being divided. Here's why there's a split. It's because you stopped worshiping me a long time ago, and you've got all these other little gods, and he names them. 
And that's why you're in the situation that you're in. So I think it's good for us, regardless of where our country leads, to take heart as Christians to understand what is it exactly that's happening here. Have we sought the Lord on the matter? Do we have his answer on the situation? Because he says, I'm going to read it to you in verse 15, for the turn of events was of God, all of it. Interesting. What we're about to read here in chapter 10 or the rest of 10 is man ruling himself. And this is what it looks like. So King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who stood before his father, Solomon, while he still lived, saying, how do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him saying, if you are kind to these people and please them and speak good words to them, they will be your servants forever. Give them whatever they want, and you got them. Maybe. But he rejected the advice. Why? That's always my question. He hasn't even got the other side yet, but he's already rejected their advice, and he's moving on to other advice because he didn't want that advice. That's the answer. They didn't tell him what he wanted to hear. The Bible has three different scriptures that God gives us, Proverbs eleven fourteen. Where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So the Proverbs writer is saying you need to seek counsel. He's doing that, but he's not seeking counsel because he doesn't know. He's looking for an answer, and he's going to keep asking different people until he hears what he wants to hear, and he'll go with that. Proverbs 15.22, without counsel, plans go awry. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. Proverbs 24.6, for by wise counsel, you will wage your own war. And in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. Provided you listen to everybody. Provided you get it all, but you go to God and ask for answers. What does God want to do? That's how you know. And it may not be A or B, because that's all the counselors are going to give you. See, he thinks the solution is I raise taxes or I lower taxes. And God may say, no, I've got a whole different plan. How about worship me? That's not what they're asking about. No, but that's the problem. What you're dealing with is a symptom of a much bigger problem. But he doesn't ask God. He asked the old guys. The old guys said, yeah, just give it to him. It'll be all right. He rejected their advice. And he went to the young guys, the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. These are his buddies. And he said to them, what advice do you give? How should I answer these people who have spoken to be saying, lighten the yoke, which, is, uh, which your father put on us? And the younger men, or the young men, who had grown up with him, spoke to him, saying, thus you should speak to the people who have spoken to you, saying, your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. Smack that stick a little bit harder on their backs. Let them know who's boss. Need to establish your throne. They're challenging you. They think you're weak. I mean, there's a whole lot in this. You need to smack them harder. Let them know. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips. I will chastise you with scourges. And scourges is the same thing. It's like a cat of nine tails with little pieces of pottery mixed in with it to really shred that skin when you get whipped. You think whippings were bad. Oh, man. you know. So fear. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day. 
as the king had directed, saying, Come back to me the third day. Then the king answered them roughly. King Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders, and he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made you yoke heavy. I will add to it. My father chastised you with whips. I will chastise you with scourges. So the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of events was from God, that the Lord might fulfill his word, which he had spoken by the hand of Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. It's a prophecy being fulfilled here. Now, it doesn't take much for God to get this situation to unfold like he wants it to for the prophecy to be fulfilled. It's almost as if, uh, and I think it's a fact, that God intervenes on our behalf all the time, and when he wants us to go in a different direction, all he has to do is remove his hand from our lives, and boy, there we go. Our default is sin. Our default is rebellion. Our default is to divide. Our default is for confusion in our lives. It's only when we have God's hand upon our lives. Uh, one guy said, when you're under the, the spout where the glory comes out, that's old school preaching there. That's when everything's right. It doesn't take much to get everything wrong. And that's where they find themselves. God says, these turns of events are of me. All I've done is remove my hand and let men be men. There they go. There they go. Now we need to read 1 Kings chapter 11 to understand what's happening. So if you turn there in your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 11, we'll start in verse 29. This is the prophecy that was given to Solomon, or Jeroboam. Now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah the the Shilonite met him on the way. So he's taken off running for, running for Egypt. And he had clothed himself with a new garment, and uh, the two were alone in the field. And Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. They're kind of theatrical, those prophets. They like to do things to drive the point home. So he's got this new clothes, and he rips it up into 12 pieces. Okay. So now he's standing there naked with 12 pieces of cloth in his hand. That'll, you'll remember that moment, you know. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself ten pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to you. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. I want you to take ten, but the other two, I know it says one, but he gets Judah and Benjamin both. These two are going to be his, because I told David he's going to always have a throne, so I want to keep my word there, but it's going to be divided. So you take 10. Because, verse 33, they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Shamash, the god of the Moabites, Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments as did his father David. That's why this is happening. That's why the prophecy was given. That's why God is letting this happen. Right now it's happening organically. Well, would they think it is? But ten tribes are going to secede from the nation of Israel and become Israel. They'll be called Israel the rest of the time. And Judah will be the southern two tribes of the southern kingdom and the northern kingdoms of the upper ten. And that's how it's divided up. 
They did it because they had worshipped other gods. This all started with Solomon. Remember, Solomon had a chink in his armor, and that was women. And he had a thousand wives. Started off with one. Grabbed a gal from Egypt because he thought that would help trade relations and all that. And, And that's how they did it. And we all know that from history, that sometimes different political parties or different countries would marry off their kids to kind of make sure that there was blood. We're relatives now. We're no longer, you know, peace deals kind of thing. Weird peace deals, but that's how they used to do it. Well, it got to the point where she was like, I want to go worship my gods. I'm tired of going to temple with you, you know. So we built her a god temple for her little G god from Egypt, and she began going, and he got some other wives, and they all worshiped other gods. So we built them temples as well. Happy wife, happy life, you know. Well, happy wives, happy life (laughs) for Solomon. Which has never been said by anybody, by the way. (laughs) It's never worked. Can't have wives, but he tried. And pretty soon he finds himself not sending her off to go worship, but he ends up joining. I don't want to go to church by myself and you come with me. So he starts going too and bowing down and worshiping all these other gods as well. God's watching all this. I think right now we're in the middle of a great apostasy right now. Spoken of in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I don't think I've any, ever seen anything like it in my lifetime anyway. Maybe it has. Maybe it hasn't. Feels weird to me right now to watch Christians not only walk away from the faith or just fall into sin because they love their sin. That's happened all the time. Something different's happening. People are deconstructing their faith, they call it, and then showing people how to deconstruct their Christian faith. Brett and Link are the ones that I'm thinking of. I was looking up Phil Vischer and trying to figure out where he went off base and how he got crazy. He's the guy that started VeggieTales and all. And, um, ended up pulling Rhett and Link up because I just thought those guys are so funny. They used to be on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ when they got out of college. And they had another brother with them that was on, not a brother brother, but a brother in the Lord who was on staff. And he's the one writing this article that I read about Rhett and Link, their popular YouTube channel. Maybe you've seen it. Well, anyway, both those guys have walked away from Jesus and have deconstructed their faith and put out a four-part series teaching people and showing people how they did it. Okay. That's a whole different kind of walking away from the Lord. That's, that's apostasy. C.S. Lewis described apostasy like this. He said, the difference between a pagan and someone who's apostate or becoming or is a, an apostate is a girl who's never been married versus an adulterer. See, a pagan is someone who just isn't acquainted with Jesus and is becoming acquainted with Jesus, but hasn't put on the ring, basically. And maybe you're in that place today, and you're one of those people. Apostates, though, know him, walked away from him, took the ring off. That's an adulterer or an adulteress. And that's what's happening. That's what apostasy is defined as and what is happening, I I believe, all over the world right now. Europe is considered post-Christian. They call themselves post-Christian. We've been there, done that. Post, after Christians. We're moving on, basically, which is right along with prophecy and Scripture. Okay, so why bring that up? Well, Rhett asked a good question, and it, and it tells me a lot about what church he grew up in. This is how he destructed his faith, and it was the first, or deconstructed his faith, destruction, but 
He calls it deconstruct. He asked a question, if I don't have to believe it, why believe it? Who taught you that you didn't have to believe it? What church did you go to that told you that there was another way other than Jesus Christ to get to heaven? I make memes. I kind of do that sometimes. I make them for the church. I've got another one I haven't put out yet. I just like doing that sometimes. It's my little protest to put out my memes, you know. But part of it is trying to find the right contrast. Do I want to let the words, uh, the, the, the picture behind the words be seen or not seen? Do I want it bold and obvious or do I want to kind of let it fade in and out so it just kind of looks like, oh, look at the words are just right there over the top. Kind of thing. I'm a very creative person. Well, I got to thinking about this. One of the choices you can make in my little meme generator is you can make your words gray or white or whatever. And when you put a gray word on top of a gray background, it's there. Really hard to see. But when you put a black background with the white words on top of it, man, it just pops. We have a beautiful God who is absolutely holy absolutely perfect, beautiful, unbelievably better than us in every way, shape, or form, and that is the understatement of the world. And when I look at him, I, like John, and I believe like all of us here, would fall to our face before him in embarrassment, in shame, or in just honor of who he is. And on the other hand, I have the Savior, Jesus Christ, who makes up the difference between what I'm feeling when I look at this perfect God and I look at this Jesus over here who bridged the gap that I thought was impossible to bridge. I am so far from this perfect God. I look at Jesus in absolute adoration, in a a dewy-eyed, you know, look at him. I mean, would you just look at him? What an amazing Savior. What great salvation is this? How in the world he's amazing? How can you not love this guy? Now, that's black and that's white. You start making this gray over here, eh, not so sinful. Not as sinful. Wasn't that great. A lot of problems, a lot of differences. You know, it's okay, kind of. We'll all figure it out in the end. All of a sudden, eh, one of many. It's a good choice. Nothing wrong with Jesus, but there's other ways. You know? All of a sudden, you get this gray on gray, and it becomes less apparent on why we need him, which is the question, if I don't need to believe this, why believe it? How easily you can destruct your faith that way. And it is very hard to find a church that still embraces the beauty and the holiness and the perfection of the true and living God and him only, matched with the beautiful grace and mercy, the unbelievable salvation and love demonstrated for us in this Jesus. When those two things come together and it's explosion, it pops, it's an amazing, beautiful color of Christianity, flavor. I don't know how else to put it. Maybe you're a cook. It's like spooning in the spices, you know, It just, wow, that just exploded in my mouth. What an amazing flavor. I've got to have as much of that as possible. Or the color. Oh, look at the color. I like the guy that takes the paint can and 
spins it and it rotates around the white fabric. He, he paints the whole canvas black. It's huge, 4 by 8 4 by 10 Who knows how big this canvas is? And he's got this rope hanging from the ceiling with this big five-gallon bucket. He pokes holes in it, puts different colors in it. He spins it and just lets it... Sorry. I'm excited, okay? It spins and it just does this. He just lets it go and it's just... That's my Jesus on my sin. The black backdrop of my sin, truly, when Paul said, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, he just, boom. But if I start making that canvas gray or mud-colored, the colors just don't pop. Now, Paul qualifies that and says, God forbid that we should sin more to make his colors pop better. Now, it's a paraphrase. He doesn't exactly say that, but we don't want the grace to pop so much. So I'm going to sin it up today. Isn't my Jesus great? He covered all that. No. No. But boy, you cannot diminish the holiness of God and expect to not diminish Jesus Christ. They go hand in hand. Jesus made up a difference that I don't think any of us can comprehend. When we stand in heaven, we know we've got the righteousness of Christ. I understand it. It's a mirror dimly. You know, I kind of get it. But I think when we stand there, we're like, Oh, man, now we know why John in the book of Revelation falls on his face. Because he's in just, I can't believe I'm here. And what does Jesus do? Places his hand on his shoulder and says, John, it's okay. It's okay. Anybody been in trouble before? I mean, like big trouble, and you're waiting for it. And then it doesn't happen. Or the person forgives you, or the person says, that's all right. And you're like, I mean, I thought I was dead. I thought I was going to get whatever was coming my way. Sometimes I like to watch those shows where the guys are standing before the judge and they're just these terrified kids going, man, I messed up. And the judge says, you know you messed up? I do. I know I messed up. Right then, I don't need to talk about this anymore. What? What? You know, that's our Jesus. Now, he doesn't just cover our sins. He pays for the sins, believe me, they're not just you know, broomed under the carpet, swept under the carpet. He's a stunning savior. They've forgotten that. I think in our nation, we've forgotten that. It doesn't matter whether you worship Jesus. It doesn't matter whether you're worshiping the moon god over here, you're worshiping that god over here. I mean, it doesn't really matter. I mean, as long as you have faith, we're told. No. No, Christianity is very, very different. Christianity calls it like it is, shows us a God is perfect and holy, shows us who we are, as black as this carpet up here, but then shows us what he's done to make up that difference between who he is and who we are or what we've become. And he loved us so much that he wasn't willing to leave that gap there, that he filled that gap with his son, Jesus. And he states clearly, if you do not have the son, you do not have the father. He who has the son has the father. He who does not have the son does not have the father. By under no name under heaven can man be saved other than through Jesus Christ. You know, Rhett and Link, you do have to believe Jesus. John 3 is so clear when he lines it. Look, you're condemned already. He who does not believe is already condemned. Be believing. 
Believe on the Savior. Believe and trust in Jesus so that you're not condemned. The whole world, every person that's ever been born is destined for hell because of our sin and our rebellion against God. We've separated ourselves from him on purpose. I want my way, not your way. And everybody's done that. God, knowing that, not satisfied with leaving it like that, sent his son to die on the cross for my sins and for your sins and for the sins of the world, he tells us. Believe, but you must believe. It's not an and situation. It's just him. So they were able to deconstruct their faith because they didn't have a faith that understood that very issue. You cannot have heaven without Jesus Christ. You will not go to heaven without Jesus Christ. It's impossible. God said so. You must be born again. The nation of Israel has come to the place where they could worship any God, and really the only issue their country has is taxes. No, guys, you got bigger issues. We have bigger issues in our country. You can't just say, God bless America anymore. He can't. He can bless some of the stuff, but there's a lot of stuff he can't. If my people will humble themselves, right? and turn from their wicked ways, then he'll heal their land. But without the turning from our wicked ways, there's no healing that's going to take place. There's no way he can bless it. There's no way he can keep it. I I don't know if we're witnessing this or not, but it sure feels like a whole lot of confusion and a whole lot of God's, God's hand being removed right now. And a lot of wandering. And a lot of people are misunderstanding and think, oh, it's about taxes. Or it's about this, or it's about... <laughs> no, it's it's C. It's about worshiping Jesus. Freedom, freedom of religion. Uh, you got to read all the papers. You need all the Federalist Papers, all the letters that the guys wrote, all the Founding Fathers, everything they wrote before you read the Constitution. Then you'll understand, when they were talking about God, they're not talking about God like in a general idea. They were more talking about denominations. We're not going to establish a denomination. Never in their wildest dreams did they ever think any God would do. It was always Jesus, but we just weren't going to have some Church of England thing again. Where the government had established this denomination as the denomination. No, it's, but it's always been Jesus. Always intended for that. Never thought satanic worship was okay or worshiping the moon god was okay. No. I mean, we had a couple crazy founding guys, but we let them in. Now, we need to worship God. We need to worship the true and living God, not some fake little G. And to think that he would do this to Israel and not do this again, I think is naive on our part. So if my people who are called by my name, we can't do about the people that don't call on him. Nothing we can do about that. That's theirs. You know? But if you call upon the name of Jesus, we've got to let him, God, Jesus, do everything he wants to do in my life and remove all that he wants to remove. He needs me to turn from my wicked ways, and he needs all of us to do that. And then we have hope. But that's got to happen. That has to happen. So Jeroboam told all the people, this is uh, 
This is how I'm going to do things. Now, verse 16, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, what share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to your tents, O Israel, now see to your own house, O David. So all Israel departed to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent um, Hadarim, who was in charge of revenue. This is the first IRS guy. Doesn't go well for him. It's like he was down in the Appalachian Mountains or something. It's not good. We don't like them revenuers down here. Well, the children of Israel stoned him with stones, and he died. Therefore, King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee to Jerusalem. Uh, the natives are not happy, you know. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Remember, this is all by God's hand. This is all by him. He's letting it happen. When you bring confusion, uncertainty, when men no longer trust in themselves anymore, there's nowhere else to look but up. And that really is the purpose of this. They, God isn't happy with it, but he's certainly not going to let his kids go on thinking that they're governing themselves, managing themselves, that they're okay without him, that they can worship or date any other God they want to date and expect him to still fulfill his obligations. I mean, imagine that if you're married and they're off tramping around on you, you know, on you, you know. And they come back to you and say, can I have some money? No, no, you can't. Get it from him or her or whoever it is. I don't feel safe. Can I stay here tonight? No, you can't. Stay with them. That's all God's doing here. You, I provide for you. I provide protection. I provide provision. I've given you the land. I got you out of Egypt. I mean, I've done so much. I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've called you my own. I've chosen you out of all the peoples of the earth. And that wasn't enough. You went off to worship these little G's because it made you feel better and let you satisfy or gratify your flesh. Because that's all these other gods do. See, our God calls to a death of the flesh. We need to die to ourselves. Die to that flesh. Don't let that flesh rule. All the other gods are, in one way, shape, or another, allowing us to fulfill or gratify some sin that we love. And so they've chosen these other gods to let them do what they want to do. God says, no, it's not going to be good for you. A jealous God isn't this, I, I want to beat everybody up that's looking at you funny, honey. That's a child's jealousy. A jealousy is, I love you so much, I'm not going to let you hurt yourself or continue to hurt yourself over there with that person who is not looking out for your best interest. That's a different kind of jealousy then. Our God is a jealous God in both senses. Don't be looking at her. But also, honey, He's not good for you. He's not good for you. He's going to hurt you. But sometimes you have to let them understand that and experience that for themselves before they come to themselves, which is what's happening here. Okay, govern yourselves. Okay, provide for yourselves. Okay, protect yourselves. I'll be over here when you need me, basically. I want to stay as close to them as possible. My walk with Jesus in, in, in the new covenant, which we're going to celebrate today in communion, has to be understood in the fact that I've married myself to Christ. I'm a born-again believer. He's mine. He's my all in all. I don't share him with anybody, and I don't share myself with anybody else. He's mine, and I'm his. 
And he's as beautiful as the day I ever met him. And I've loved, fallen more in love with him the more I get to know him. He's amazing. I realize who I am and how far I am from the Father. And I realize what my Savior has done for me. It should just build. Paul shows that in his walk. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the least of the saints. I'm the chief of sinners. That's his progression towards the Lord. He realizes at the end of it all, oh my goodness. Jesus is more beautiful than the first time I saw him. Now, I, that's where we're going to close today. I, um, I, I, first service, I read chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, but or 4. That I don't know that's necessary. Maybe I better. I better because I did for them. I'm just going to read it. No commentary. Um, now, when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem... He assembled from the house of Judah and Benjamin 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against Israel that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam. Going to go to war. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel and Judah and Benjamin, saying, Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your brethren. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. Therefore they obeyed the words of the Lord and turned back from attacking Jeroboam. It's good. He just makes it clear to them that what's happening here is mine, and no, you're not going to fight your way to peace and prosperity. You need to humble yourself before me, is where he's headed with that. And the guys are going to hand out communion now. We'll talk about that while they're doing it. The chapter's a good chapter. It's very timely, I think, for us. Because I think there's a lot of Christians out there praying their way through whatever's happening in our country right now and in this world right now, trying to figure out what it is I'm supposed to do next. How am I supposed to act? I mean, is it a Nero situation where I'm just supposed to obey the authorities over me and pray for a peaceable life? Are we in a situation where we need another revolution and we need to uh, rise up like our founding fathers did? Uh, Or is it a mix or is it none of those things? And God has the answer for that. We as Christians, you've got to pray and pray and seek the Lord. What does God want us to do? How does he want us to react to these things? You don't want to be like these guys who didn't even, didn't even consider across their mind to ask God what he wants each of us to do. To be led by the Spirit as a Christian is to not know the circumstances completely, but be in perfect line with God's will just because you obeyed him. If I look for circumstances to lead and guide me every step of the way, I'm going to get myself into trouble. But if I'm listening to the Holy Spirit say, go this way, go that way, I can walk through all of this minefield unscathed because he's always looking out for our best interests. I know this, that we're supposed to be bold for Jesus, to tell people about him to be light in a dark world. And just because the world gets darker doesn't mean we need to dim. It just means we're going to stand out a little bit more. You're going to shine a little bit brighter. You're going to draw some attention, some good, some bad. Some will want to snuff it out, put it under a bushel, put it under a basket. You know, some will try to blow it out like the song we sing with the kids. Others are going to be drawn to it want to know, how come you have peace during this time? How come you have assurance how come you're so confident? Ah, it's not me. 
It's about the Savior that I trusted in, that God sent for all of us. And you can trust in him too and have the same peace and that you can have the same confidence that we all have, regardless of what this world decides to do. And by the way, if you haven't read Revelation, it's not good. But in all of this, the Christians are still full of the fruit of the Spirit. Long-suffering, or patient, or kind. We have joy. Joy? Yep. Joy. That's a fruit of that's one of the fruits of love, which is the first fruit of the spirit, or the only fruit. The rest are attributes of that love, but I don't want to get into the, to that. Kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. All of that happens in the midst of the Christians being thrown to the lions, in the midst of Nero lighting them on fire, in the midst of all the things we've read about in the past. That Christians had to go through, certainly we can muster some of that up, right? In the sense that we let the Holy Spirit live and breathe and move through us, you know? So that people can be drawn to that and understand, what is it that you have that I don't have? Well, it's Jesus. It's not something I do, it's something he does. And you can have it too. Which is what communion's about. When Paul lays it out for these guys, he explains this for them on the night that Jesus was betrayed, you know the words. He took the bread that they were all eating, and he broke it, and he gave thanks. He said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you as often as you do this. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup that night, passed it around. They all drank from it. He says, take and drink. This is the cup of my new covenant, the blood of the new covenant. My blood shed for you. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And Paul goes on to explain that as they're celebrating this time of remembering Jesus, that some were eating and drinking at the time in an unworthy manner. And he warns about that. The unworthy manner is simply this. It's not that you're a sinner. Every one of us shouldn't take it then. We should, none, none of us should be holding it in our hands right now because every one of us is broken. No, the unworthy manner is that you understand what this means, that this represents his body, this represents his blood, and, and you don't believe it. You reject Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you eat and drink this cup and this bread anyway. It's a renouncing of Christ. He says, be careful. Don't do that. I encourage you today, if you're not ready to make a decision for Jesus, if you haven't trusted him for your salvation, put it on the ground. It's okay. We'll pick it up. Paul goes on to say, though, if you're in that place of being in an unworthy place, better yet, examine yourself. See yourself for who God sees you as and who you really are. Don't lie to yourself anymore. See the sin. Acknowledge it. Know that it's black and ugly, and it's so far from how perfect God is that you embrace Jesus this morning as your Savior, that you know you're in desperate need of someone to bridge that gap between my lack of holiness and his perfect holiness. And Jesus is that gap. He makes that bridge, makes the bridge for that gap. I receive him as my Lord and Savior this morning. Do that. And then eat and drink with us in a worthy manner for the first time maybe in your life you've ever had communion where it meant something and you truly believed in Jesus. We start right now. Some of the songs we sang invoked a lot of emotion in me. It's just, oh man, I don't deserve this love. I'm like, God, you know. I don't. After how many years of ministry and after how many, you know, I've been saved for decades now. I've been teaching the Bible for decades and I still hear those songs and I'm just still in that place. It's like, 
and I never want to leave it, but, oh, Lord, vivid, bright, beautiful grace and mercy that God has for us. Take it every time. Enjoy it. Savor it. And so I hope you do that this morning. We're going to pray here, and most of us will be remembering what Jesus has done for us, but for some of you, it'll be the first time, and I hope you thoroughly enjoy this. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have, that you prescribed for us to do. As often, you said, we eat this bread and drink this cup, that we do this in remembrance of you. And we do. We remember your, the perfection, the holiness, the beautiful person that you are, God. And then the difference between us and how we're just, we're just not. We're not that beautiful in our sin. Yet you sent your son because you loved us, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins, to take our place, to take our, to take our penalty. The wages of sin is death, and he took that for us because you loved us so much, and, and, and we acknowledge that. We believe that this morning. And we receive you, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior. For some the first time, for others, we just reminded that you're our Savior. And that we're as saved as we were the first day we gave our lives to you. We remember that beauty, that grace, that mercy that you give us. And for those that it's the first time this morning, Lord, I pray that you keep them. Wrap your loving arms around them. Help them to know truly they're forgiven. That the burden has been lifted off their back of all their sins, secret and known. And that you've paid the price for all of them and they are absolutely justified in your sight because of your son. They're absolutely forgiven. Nothing can separate them from you now. Your love for them is deep and wide, and your thoughts towards them are precious as the sands of the sea. I pray they truly, truly know how much you love them, and that they grow to love you more and more as they learn of you. So Lord, keep them. We know that they're your disciples now. They're following you. They're walking after you. And your Holy Spirit will not leave them alone. You will teach them and guide them and instruct them in the ways that they should walk and teach them your word. And we're thankful for that promise. And if we can be a part of that in any way, Lord, thank you that we get to be a part of that ministry in their lives. So Lord, we take this bread and this cup and we eat and drink together in a worthy manner because we love you and because you're worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name.